Hey, everybody, what's up? And welcome to Summarily, a podcast for busy lawyers where lawyers like you come for practice tips, free CLE courses, commentary about the law, and case law updates. And that is what is in store for today. This is your host, Robert Scavone Jr. I'm an appellate lawyer at Florida Appeals, and I clerked at the U.S. Court of Appeals for the 11th Circuit, as well as at the 3rd District Court of Appeal here in Florida. And I'm your co-host, Jennifer Obiola. I'm a trial and appellate lawyer in the PIP and insurance defense space, and I was claims counsel for a national insurance company. Good to see you, Jen. Nice to see you, too. Everything going good? Everything's been great. 2024 has gotten off to a really good start. Good. I'm looking forward to the rest of the year. I'm interested to see what some of the legislation that's pending yeah. um, happens. We, you know, it talked in prior episodes about um, the one-way attorney fees provision. I know that there is a bill that could impact PIP specifically, who, which proposes fees to the winner, which so that could change things in the in the PIP space. And as probably almost every year since I've been practicing PIP, another attempt to repeal PIP and replace it with mandatory VI is pending. So that passed last time around, but it was vetoed by the governor. So we're kind of watching out for those things too. If there's any updates, we can surely share those on uh, one of the episodes. Absolutely. And, you know, we're going to do, we'll do an episode at the end of the session to highlight any important changes that uh, are relevant to what we talk about. But before we jump into the PIP and insurance cases from January, let me pause for the disclaimer. This podcast is for informational purposes only and is not an advertisement for legal services. The information provided on this podcast is not intended to be legal advice. You should not rely on what you hear on this podcast as legal advice. If you have a legal issue, please contact a lawyer. The views and opinions expressed by the hosts and guests are solely those of the individuals and do not represent the views or opinions of the firms or organizations with which they are affiliated or the views and opinions of this podcast's advertisers. This podcast is available for private, non-commercial use only. Any editing, reproduction, or redistribution of this podcast for commercial use or monetary gain without the expressed written consent of the podcast's creators is prohibited. All right, Jen, I know we're both on a tight timeline, so let's jump in. All right. The first opinion is United Automobile Insurance Company versus ISO Diagnostics Testing, Inc. As a signee of, and I'm just going to say the last name here, it's Morales. Um, I know I would butcher it otherwise. This opinion was issued by the 4th District on January 10th, and it was a PIP case. Here, the insurer appealed the trial court's grant of summary judgment in favor of ISO. The facts and argument here are a little bit confusing, so bear with me. If you practice PIP, though, you're going to know exactly what this case is about. The PIP statute says that the fee schedule you apply when you're limiting reimbursements is the one in effect on March 1st of the year in which the services were rendered. It goes on to say that the applicable fee schedule or payment limitation applies throughout the remainder of that year notwithstanding any subsequent change made to the fee schedule or payment limitation. And the policy here uh, had language mirroring the statute. So the general interpretation of this is it's the fee schedule from March 1st through February of the next year. Here, ISO submitted a bill, and that bill must have been for a date of service sometime between January 1st and February of 2017. I'm looking at the dates. So we are 
we are discussing a case that what presumably was in the trial court in 2018 maybe presumably this appeal was filed in 2022 but remember i've mentioned on prior episodes pip cases for for one reason or another tend to pend for a really long time there's case management orders that have come out that try to move those along faster than before but a lot of times you have cases that'll have multiple different issues in pip and if you have, for example, one of the issues you know that you see a lot in the state is the build amount issue. That's the case that I told you we're still waiting on a yeah. Supreme Court opinion on. And it was argued in March of last year before the Supreme Court. So Jesus. say a case has an issue like that, it's probably going to be stayed. I don't know if that was the case here, but it, it sits and waits for those to go all the way up to the DCA. So could be what caused the delay here. I'm not sure, but yes. I mean, it's been, it it, it seems like it's been like six years since summary judgment. Right. (laughs) All right. Well, I don't know when the summary judgment. Right. I mean, but trial court here, but yeah, you have, you have, you know, five years to file. It's been at least four years. It's been at least four years. Mm -hmm. It has to have been at least four years. Well, this, this appeal was filed in 2022. Right. But just that alone is like, you know. You got five years to file your lawsuit. And so, you know, if it was filed at the last minute and then it pended in the trial court for a while, here we are. (laughs) Because it was submitted between January 1st and February of 2017, the insurer paid based on the 2016 fee schedule, whatever was in existence on March 1st, 2016. Right. ISO sued, arguing that the insurer should have paid using the 2017 fee schedule which is when the services were rendered. Now, can I just ask you a quick question? Uh Uh-huh. Was there a material difference between the 2016 and the 2017 schedule? Usually it's a few cents. And and I'm not sure without going back (laughs) and looking, but but with one-way attorney's fees and PIP, you know, know. prior to the March amendments, you win one cent, you get attorney's fees. (laughs) I know, I know. And so you'll see, and you have seen probably in the last, you know, year or two since we've been doing these updates we've talked about it more of these de minimis arguments yep. that the the amounts are de minimis. and we've covered a couple where the where yes. the appellate courts have actually said we're not going to deal with this yes you the have. amount of controversy and, is like 36 cents get out of here yes and yeah. it's still an issue that gets litigated as like an underlying defense in a lot of cases yeah so sorry to interrupt no it's okay They argued basically that the term year in the policy meant calendar year instead of service year. The trial court agreed with them and ruled against the insurer and the insurer appealed. The fourth district held that the PIP statute dictated the use of a service year and not a calendar year. Mm -hmm. It noted that the fee schedules for the applicable year are published in November. So if the legislator wanted the calendar year to be used, it would have said January 1st in the statute instead of saying March 1st. And it did that for a reason. Right. So a service year would run from the beginning of March through February of the following year. And applying the calendar year here would lead to a strained, forced, or unrealistic construction of the policy. So is is the have, have other DCAs opined on on this particular calendar year versus service year issue? You know, I don't I don't think so. I haven't wow. seen any DCA opinions on this. However, it's 
kind of been settled law, I thought. I haven't, you know, this is something that you used to see as an argument that would pop up in PIP cases, but it seems like it had been kind of settled. It died out. And so I was actually pretty surprised to see that this was an issue in a 2022 case that was being, you know, released in 2024, um, because you just don't see that argument come up very often. But it is interesting because, you know, Medicare updates its fee schedules. Sometimes they'll do it mid-year, which is, I think, why the statute says it doesn't matter if there's any changes to the fee schedule. It's whatever is in existence on March 1st. And sometimes even for some years, you'll see an A schedule and a B schedule. It's because they've updated that in the middle of the year. So hopefully, if it wasn't put to bed before, it's put to bed now. Yeah. All right. You've got another fourth DCA case. Yeah, the next opinion is Universal Property and Casualty Insurance Company versus Andre. I feel like we're talking about one of those case, one of their cases every week. Every time we meet, you see a lot of Universal Property and Casualty. Mm -hmm. They're always on the list. Well, this opinion was issued on January seventeenth by the Fourth District. Here, the trial court entered a sua sponte order entering default against the insurer for failure to appear at a case management conference, but after the insurer had filed an answer. Then a second successor court denied the insurer's amended motion to uh, set aside the default. The insurer argued that the orders were void because the default was entered sua sponte without providing them an opportunity to be heard. Additionally, they argued that the motion to set aside default shouldn't have been denied where the insurer satisfied the elements of due diligence, excusable neglect, and a meritorious showing of a meritorious defense. And this case was just interesting to me because I just finished doing an appellate brief (laughs) on defaults and motions to vacate them. And so all this case law was very familiar with me for me. But the law is that when a party has filed a document in a case, they're entitled to be served with the application for default and entitled to an opportunity for hearing. The court here held that because the original final default order was entered sua sponte without either of those things, it was void. Yeah. And as to the motion to vacate, since it was a denial of a motion to vacate, the court reviewed for an abuse of discretion. As a side note, if it was the granting of a motion to vacate, it would be reviewed in a higher standard, which is a gross abuse of discretion. Because there's... I've never understood these distinctions between abuse because, and you know, there's they're supposed to be more leeway for granting a yeah, motion to vacate. Yeah. You want to hear a case on the merits. So it has to be a gross abuse uh, to overturn. It's discretionary. Yeah. But here the district court found that the motion was filed only five days after the order gra- granting final default was entered. So that was a sh- that showed due diligence to them. Okay. There was a sworn statement establishing that the failure to appear at the case management conference was due to a calendaring error, and that showed a system gone awry, which is excusable neglect under the case law. And finally, the answer and affirmative defenses had already been filed, and that's all you need to do for a meritorious to show that you had a meritorious defense. So here it was an abuse of discretion to deny the motion to vacate. The district court reversed and remanded to the second successor court to vacate the default judgment as to liability against the insurer. So I just think, you know, in these cases, it's just really important to make sure that if you are the party filing that motion to vacate and set aside default, you become familiar with the case law on this. There are elements that you have to show by sworn statement. So make sure you nail all that. 
And also make sure there's some case law out there about fundamental error in entering these defaults, particularly when the final order orders damages that weren't specifically pled and things like that. So it's really Mm. worth going through the case law. You know, occasionally you'll get a case uh, referred to you that's already in default. So you have to prepare these things and you have to do them quickly because you have to show due diligence. So Right. Excellent. Let me pause for a moment to thank BetterHelp for sponsoring this podcast. Early in my career, I battled depression. I wasn't happy at my job and the discontent began affecting my marriage. I tried to work through it on my own, but could not shake the feelings of inadequacy and the thought that my life wasn't meaningful. Thankfully, I found help. Mental health counseling changed my life, and BetterHelp can give you the tools you need to approach your life in a very different way. BetterHelp's mission is to make therapy more affordable and more accessible. All you have to do is answer a few questions, and BetterHelp's online platform will pair you with a professional therapist in as little as a few days. And if your therapist isn't the right person for you, you can easily switch to a new therapist at no additional cost. To sign up and support this podcast, go to betterhelp.com backslash summarily and get 10% off your first month of BetterHelp. That's betterhelp.com backslash summarily. Check the show notes for the link. If you're struggling like I did and like so many of us do, consider online therapy with BetterHelp and start working on your mental health today. Next up. The next case is State Farm Mutual versus Matthews. This opinion was issued on January 19th by the 5th District. This dealt with whether statements were so prejudicial and inflammatory as to deny the insurer's right to fair trial. And I think our last episode had a case like this too. But this this had trial chess moves that made it stand out to me. And I thought it was probably the most interesting case that I read um, from this month. In its opening statement, the insurer claimed that the evidence was going to show that Matthew's medical providers testifying about the extent of her injuries, they were financially interested in the trial's outcome, and therefore they were not reliable witnesses. This theme was repeated throughout the trial. The idea was that these providers had bills that needed to be paid and had gotten letters of protection to be paid out of the claim proceeds once it was resolved. And so they were interested in the outcome of the trial. But mid-trial, the trial court ruled that certain medical bills were inadmissible. So the day before closing arguments, Matthews withdrew her claim for past medical expenses. So now the bills that weren't paid to those providers were no longer dependent on the outcome of the trial, but this was the day before the closing. In closing, the insurer still argued that the providers were financially self-interested. During rebuttal, counsel for Matthews argued that the providers couldn't possibly be interested in the outcome of the case because there's no claim for past medical bills. Mm -hmm. The insurer objected, and I believe they would have gone to sidebar for this. And they argued that this interest for the providers existed all the way up to the night before closing. So (laughs) So to argue now the very next day that there is no interest is misleading and prejudicial. And they didn't really specifically say this in the order, but, you know, if they're the day before closing, 
presumably these providers have already testified once that once those claims for past medical bills was withdrawn. Yep. So the judge actually allowed this argument from Matthews to continue and the jury ended up finding permanent injury in the accident. And in the appeal, the insurer argued that a new trial was warranted based on those statements. Now, we've we went over, I think in the very last episode, how prejudicial statements, you know, how extreme they must be for a new trial. Here, the fifth district held that the insurer emphasized the financial interest over and over through the trial. And Matthew's counsel's argument specifically referenced that only certain providers didn't have a dog in the fight, not Mm. all the providers. So it didn't obliterate all of the insurer's credibility arguments as this insurer had claimed on appeal. You know, we didn't get rid of all your credibility arguments just as to these providers. And finally, the fifth district held that even if the comments were misleading, they weren't pervasive, but isolated. So they weren't highly prejudicial and inflammatory enough to warrant a new trial. Hmm. So like you said, this is sort of like a chess game that was going on. Mm -hmm. Uh, What do you think the insurer could have done differently? Well, when you're on the spot in trial, it's you, you're making mm. these split second decisions. Sure. Um, in trial, it is like a game of chess. There's a lot of moving parts. And so evidence can come in and get withheld in the middle of it. And you're constantly having to analyze your strategy and your decisions based on that. Which, mm-hmm. by the way, is a good reason for trial counsel to have appellate counsel involved with the case right up Beforehand. front. Yeah. Exactly. I, I totally agree. And a lot of good decision makers out there do that. They will yeah. reach out and they'll get feedback and they, they want to know what things, what evidence we need to preserve issues for a potential appeal ahead of time, which is which is great to do. Yeah. And and as appellate counsel, we appreciate it because we know the right things are being preserved. <laughs> Absolutely. When it's time to make those arguments. Yep. But to Monday morning quarterback here. I think that the insurer here did tell the jury that Matthews was not pursuing past medical expenses in the closing, in their their closing argument. Mm-hmm. But he argued that the letter of protection gave them an interest in the outcome of the case. It doesn't appear, though, that they addressed past medical expenses. So insurer gets, you know, Matthews gets up in their first closing, say their thing. Insurer gets up in the second closing they talk about the letter of protection, but they don't talk about the past medical expenses. Right, right. So, you know, I'm thinking, you know, maybe they could have said, look, because this is their only closing. I think that's also the crucial thing here. This yeah. is the only closing they get. And Matthews gets up to do it again. And that's where right. all the problem happens and rebuttal. Right. And the insurance company can't get back up and say anything else. Yeah. So maybe in their the insurer's closing, you know, they could have said something like, you know, Matthews is not pursuing medical expenses today, but there's evidence in the record, or you heard evidence about a letter of protection, which is proof he had the ability to do so. And there's right. no evidence before you today that these providers had any clue that he had at some point decided not to pursue those past medical expenses. So as far as they knew, they had a letter of protection and they had an interest in the outcome Mm -hmm. of whatever claim he had. Something to that effect, you know, you have to rely on evidence that's in the record. You can't make arguments about things that are not in the record, but to connect the dots, I think that the night before when those records when, when there's a piece of evidence that's going to be kept out, you know, you're reanalyzing, okay, 
that's going to be kept out. How yep. is that going to impact the rest of this trial? Cause we still have closing. So it's hard to anticipate what the other side's going to do or say in their closing. It's impossible to anticipate every possible thing, but yeah. they, they had it going. At least it looks like from the facts of this record that about, you know, the reason for the interest is these lack of prosecution notices. I think also remember jurors are lay people. They don't have necessarily the legal education that we have in the training and all of that. So when you are trying to insinuate something, sometimes you just have to tell them. You yeah. have to spell it out based on the record. You have to connect the dots for it. You can't assume that they're going to put two and two together or understand exactly how a letter of protection works or anything like that. Keep yep. it to the record and what you know what the witnesses testified about and what evidence they have. But connect yeah, you the gotta, dots. You, but you got to walk them through it. Right, right. You so, you know, just kind of a lesson. I thought it was a great case in terms of a lesson, you know, always remember to reanalyze based on the evidence and, you know, who's, and I think the the DCA kind of ruled here that that comment didn't necessarily obliterate their case, that the jury could have still made that connection and they got out what they needed. So it wasn't enough to warrant a new trial. But if you, if you're questioning whether or not the jury got your point, walk them through it. Definitely yeah. walk them through it. Yeah, absolutely. Let me pause for a moment to thank the law office of Scott N. Richardson, PA, for supporting this podcast. Scott is a former prosecutor who now focuses exclusively on criminal defense. And he is one of the leading criminal defense lawyers in Florida. I have known Scott for several years and litigated against him when I was a prosecutor. All the prosecutors, judges, and defense lawyers that I know regard Scott as a phenomenal lawyer. He is a consummate professional and always zealously advocates for his clients. Scott has been board certified in criminal law for nearly 30 years and has been practicing law for over 40 years. He is a fellow at the American College of Trial Lawyers, an honor bestowed on only 1% of all lawyers in any state. If you need representation, reach out to Scott at 561 471 9600 or find him at scottnrichardsonlaw.com. And I think to wrap up, you wanted to talk a little bit about a, an opinion that we covered in November. So there was a case, there was an opinion that was issued this month. It's it's in Solzer versus American Integrity Insurance Company of Florida. This was a sixth district opinion that was issued on January 8th. And it's an update, actually, to an issue that we covered in uh, November. In the November updates, we discussed Hughes versus Universal Property and Casualty Insurance Company. There they are again. <laughs> yep. <laughs> there they are again. <laughs> Where the 6th District held that a property pre-suit notice requirement found in 627.70152 was substantive, and therefore it was not retroactive to policies incepted before the statute's enactment. The court in that case had relied on an old PIP case called Menendez, and the court in that case had certified conflict with the fourth DCA in Cole versus Universal Property, again, and insurance <laughs> issued in May 2023, which distinguished the PIP Menendez case from property law statutory framework at issue in Cole. Here in this Solzer case, the six District again addressed the same issue, made the same ruling in reliance on Hughes, and once again certified conflict with Cole. So now we have two cases from the sixth certifying conflict on this issue about the retroactivity of statutes. All right. Well, another one to be on the lookout for. Yep. All right. All right.
Well, thanks, Jen, as always, for providing your expertise. Appreciate it. Thank you. I hope you have a great Valentine's Day. Yes, I'm looking forward to it. Thanks, everybody, for listening. Please subscribe to the podcast and share with your friends and colleagues. I want to thank my friend Chris Clark of Pendulum Productions, LLC, for editing and producing this work. You can find him and his work at vimeo.com backslash Pendulum Productions, LLC. Thanks again, folks. And remember, case law is one word.